Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. About 20 years ago, I asked my little brother Christopher, uh, who then had hair, uh, I asked, they were working for Teen Challenge at the time, and uh, Christopher and I, I, I used to be his youth pastor. When I was about 23, he was what, 16, 17, 17 I guess, and uh, he said he's five, he was 17. <laughs> I am not his father, I am his brother. People have actually said to him, isn't it great that you get to work with your dad? That is not funny. <laughs> it's even less funny to my wife. It, uh, but uh, I, I, Christopher and I used to talk about revival and just dreaming about what God would do in our generation and possibly even with us. And so it's been a great honor to have him as a part of this church. And uh, they loaded up everything and moved here, moved into the basement of and his mother-in-law, Beth's mother at, at one point, uh, to serve this church. And I told him, I said, come, I got nothing to offer you, uh, but come and help me pastor this church. And he did. And I want to tell you, uh, much of what this church is broken into is because of this couple's hunger. And uh, I don't say that as some light uh, way just to honor them. That is reality. And there's many things that we've broken into as a church we would not have touched had it not been for them. And uh, they came with no offer just to sacrifice, and we ended up hiring them, and he worked how many years on staff? 16 and a half. And uh, towards the end, Beth was even on staff, and she launched some new initiatives in the church. And uh, about two years ago, the Lord began to, well, probably three years ago, the Lord began to speak to them about a transition coming off of staff. And I uh, I told Christopher the other day, I said, it was really God's grace that he took you off staff before he took you away from me. Because I, I don't see him a lot, so we can, we can still communicate by text and phone, and he's still one of my primary confidants and one of my dearest, dearest friends. And uh, so I just want to honor them, and uh, they're going to be moving. Why don't you guys go ahead and share where you're heading, either one of you. I'll share. We are moving to Florida. And it's going to be a new season for our family. Honestly, it's going to be nice for me because we're going to be really close to my parents. And we haven't lived yeah. next to them in a long time. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. We don't know all that God has for us there, but we just know that he's leading us out. And, you know, sometimes when he leads you out, you just have to go forward and yeah. believe in faith that he's got good on the other side of that. So yeah. that's what we're doing. And that's what he did with Abraham. He didn't know where he was going. So... Um, as people ask about um, things moving forward, uh, honestly, uh, you know, we're supposed to leave in a couple of days, and, and I'm still in the mode of reflecting back, because it was 20 years ago this month that we moved, re re relocated from uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, to come back to Iowa to be a part of this church, and I'm just, I'm just so thankful. I'm just grateful um, that the grace of God has allowed us to be a part of this church for the last 20 years and see all that God has done. And so um, we love you all. We love this place. And uh, so uh, stepping into an unknown future, but looking back today with great gratitude for all that God has done and the privilege of being a part of this amazing house. And I know that the best is yet to come for this place and uh, excited for that. And also grateful that 
I'll be back soon. Yeah. Um, you know, still have lots of family here in Iowa. And then, of course, just love this church. And so I believe it's mid-September I'll be back and speaking on a Sunday morning and uh, get to see you all again soon. So yeah. thank you. Love you all. Yeah. So... Yeah, Chris, Christopher will be back in September preaching from this pulpit. Now we're going to do a supernatural school up in Ames. And uh, we're still going to be doing ministry together. And he's still connected to this house. When God told me we're a sending center, uh, that sounded good until it happens. And uh, it's painful, but it's good. And I really, I do know that there, I know that this is the Lord's will. I have no doubt about it. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. I want you to honor them and pray for them that God would bless them. Father, I thank you for their sacrifice and their investment in this church. And Lord, we honor them for that. Lord, I'm asking God that the bread would come back upon the water. Lord, I thank you for breakthrough all around them in every area of their, every area of their life. And Lord, I thank you for new connections as they move to Florida. Lord, I thank you for new avenues of ministry that they can take what you've put within them and release it to the nations of the earth. Father, we bless them. We ask, keep your hand upon them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. We better carry Elijah off or he's not gonna get off. I love you guys. Hey, following the service this morning, there will be a reception back in the, could you put that over there? Thank you, sir. There's going to be a reception for Christopher and Beth back in the back atrium, and uh, you can give your goodbyes. They're going to be loading up tomorrow and uh, heading out, so uh, I do want to point out a pattern here. Notice one's going to Hawaii and the other to Florida. I'm just saying, you know, it, uh. I'm waiting to send someone to Antarctica or something, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Vicky's raising her hand. She's just, she's ready to go. Rogers, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> All right. God is good. Let's jump into the word this morning. Um, we are in a series. I want to I try to land this this morning. I don't know if we'll be able to. Uh, but we're in a series on foundations, Hebrews chapter 6, uh, where the apostle writes the epistle that says, let us not lay again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instructions and in baptisms, a laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so we're, we're looking at that last installment this morning, eternal judgment. And uh, we've been looking at the others over the last number of weeks. Uh, the first two are the, how, uh, how we enter the kingdom. The final two are how we're summed up as we enter into eternity. And uh, those middle two are important avenues of releasing the life of God into our life and into the life of others. And so we're going to look at eternal judgment. And because of the time, it's 11.22, I'm going to try to stay a little more locked to my notes. Usually my notes are ways for me to process things. Uh, but this morning, this will keep me on track. Uh, yeah, you're all looking. I felt unbelief come in the room. Okay. God is judge is a central theme to the revelation of Scripture. So we're talking about eternal judgment. 
God as judge is a central theme to the revelation of scripture. He has revealed himself and functioned as such since the beginning of time from Genesis to Revelation. This important theme is maintained throughout the New Testament. Yet at this time in Christian history, the Western church has largely lost this concept. Many view God as judge, that, that God is judge role, as something that God abandoned at Calvary. Oh, he did that and it, it was over at Calvary. Or something he's paused and put on hold until the end of the age and he'll pick it back up. And that's only for the unbeliever. But the fact is, God is the present day judge of all the earth. Matter of fact, one of the ways that Abram leveraged himself, leveraged his intercession was to say, will not the judge of all the earth do justly? The justice of God and God's judgeship, if you will, are intimately connected. There's a number of important themes that come into orbit when we start talking about this very, very important subject. The fear of the Lord, living for eternity, uh, being a good steward of our life, all is connected to this concept of eternal judgments. And so the enemy has a strategy to relieve, to, to, to put a veil over that element of God's character. Because if we fail to realize that God is not only our loving Father, but He is also the judge of all the earth, who will come. There's this phrase several times you see in the New Testament. Uh, that Jesus uses in his parables, but it's, it's an accurate portrayal of who God is. It says, and the master returned to settle accounts with his servants. God settles accounts. He deposits in us, and then he visits us to see what we did with what he put in us. And so the judgments of God are a very, very important concept. Let me read you a, a troubling scripture. Uh, Kathy, I, I have an office at home, real nice office, with a, a beautiful leather red recliner. And then I have a bedroom at home with an old ratty recliner that I've had for 25 years. It's frayed, but it is perfectly molded to my body. So guess which one I do my studying in? My kids say, Dad, why do you sleep in your office and, and study in your bedroom? I don't know. I guess it's the recliners, but I can't keep that one in a public place. It looks terrible, but it just molds to my body. So I'm in our bedroom studying, and Kathy walks in, and I said out loud, what in the world? I read this verse, and it just struck me. Let me read it to you. Uh, so, oh, my goodness, my, my uh, computer just freaked out. Okay, 1 Peter 1.17. Let, well, let's, let's read here. I even bought a physical Bible with me this morning. 1 Peter 1.17, and it speaks of, let me see here, it speaks of relating with God as the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Then he goes on to say, this is verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile. So he's saying that we're in exile right now. We are wandering the earth in exile and we're gonna enter into our inheritance at the end of the age. But one of the things we need to do is we need to relate with him as a father. We do that well in this church. We do that well in this era. That was, that was the wave, the last wave of revival really restored the fatherhood of God. 
I remember Jack Taylor, he, he made this observation. He said we had the Jesus people movement in the late 60s, early 70s. We also had the charismatic outpouring. It was a, a revival of the sun, a revival of the spirit. He said, he was saying that we need a revival of the father. And that came in the mid-90s. It was a restoration. It hit Brownsville, Pensacola, Florida on Father's Day. In Toronto, it was called the Father's Blessing. And it was a revival of the fatherhood of God. But I'm telling you what the church needs today, because there has been an establishment, but even an imbalance of God's fatherhood. It's not that we need to lay off of that message, but we need the counterbalance of that message. And it is God as judge. So Peter tells us to relate with God as Father, but a Father who will judge us according to our deeds, and he judges impartially. That word means that he doesn't, he's not moved by your rank or your status. That God judges impartially. That's why that picture of Lady Justice, she has scales and she's blindfolded. She's not going to look at who it is and determine how to balance the scales. And that is an expression of the nature of God, that God judges impartially. And so we need to know him as father, but we equally need, especially in this hour, to understand that God is a God who judges. And it's not some futuristic thing alone. He is the present day judge of all the earth. God is evaluating our behavior. God will judge us by our actions. He will judge us by our motives for our actions. He will judge us by what he's given to us. He will judge us by the knowledge we have. There are parameters to the judgment of God. But understand that we too will be judged by God. Now usually when we talk about that terminology of judgment, it's been, I, maybe this is just me, okay? But when I hear people talking about the judgments of God, I always have this immediate negative connotation of, man, this is going to be bad. Man, you know, the judgment is going to fall. There's going to be famine and lightning and thunder and people are going to die. That's, that's, that's what I think of. You're all looking at me like, Pastor, you need counseling. <laughs> that is the idea that, that comes to my mind when I hear people talk about judgment. But that is not the whole picture. The judgments of God are God's assessment on behavior. That he will come to settle accounts. And I'm going to tell you, it's not just that God's going to settle accounts with his human creation. He's going to settle accounts with his angelic creation. Psalm 82 is one as an example of God stepping in and calling into account these ruling spirits in the heavenly realms. He rebukes them because they weren't fulfilling the purpose for which they were made. They weren't being good stewards of their power. And God does the same with us. And so the judgments of the Lord are simply his assessment, his verdict, and the consequences or the sentence given. And that can be a blessing, it can be a discipline, or in regards to Hebrews chapter 6, it specifically says eternal judgments. See, it's an interesting thing in Scripture that there are two ways God judges. God judges in history, and he judges in eternity. Once he judges in eternity, there's an eternal judgment, and it's sealed. The judgments of God in history, for the believer, is known as the discipline of the Lord. 
For the unbeliever, it's the judgments of God, but they're both redemptive to get us to turn while there's still time. Because once we hit the eternal judgment, that is a place of no return. Once that decision is made, it's sealed. And so there are the eternal judgments. And so we need to understand that when God's judging, what he's doing is he's assessing us, and he's assessing us based on a number of things. He's assessing us based on the knowledge that we have. Romans chapter 1 talks about the knowledge that people have. It says that even, even the unbeliever, nature itself can, uh, declares not only the, the nature of God, but his character. We literally have to talk ourselves out of believing in God. There is, there is an intuitive knowing in the heart of man. It was, I had a conversation with someone this week, and they were, I, I was read some years ago, Helen Keller. Now, she was the one, the, the blind, deaf, mute, correct? And uh, she, Helen, I, I sometimes mix her up with the gal, Ann Sullivan, that helped her. But uh, Helen Keller, uh, she was a blind, deaf, mute. She just groped around and thrashed out and would grab food and ate like an animal. She had no contact other than touch with the external world. And Ann Sullivan... Uh, learned to uh, communicate with her and over time was able to educate her and she became a brilliant person. But one of the first things they told her about when they finally were able to communicate with her through manipulating her fingers in sign language, they told her about God. And her response was, oh, I already knew about him. I just didn't know his name. Isn't that fascinating? A blind, deaf, mute Shut off from the world, only able to communicate by touch and lashing out. But there was an awareness of her creator in her spirit. Man has to do mental gymnastics to convince himself that there's creation without a creator. Even those who believe in evolution, and I know some believers who believe that's the avenue through which God created, I don't. But even those who did, that, that, you, you could make a case for man's survival, but not his arrival. You still had to get something out of nothing. And so creation itself, Romans 1, does not let the unbeliever or the person who's never heard the gospel off the hook. Nature itself declares not only God's nature, but his character. You know, there's the, the, the distance of the sun from the earth is perfect to sustain life. A little closer, crispy critters. We wouldn't have made it. A little farther, we'd have froze to death. But it's just the right distance so that some people can go to Hawaii and be called of God to go in paradise and others can go to Antarctica and still live in both. And so it's God, God created a world and it speaks of his benevolent nature. And there are story after story, uh, a good book, you can look it up. Don Richardson wrote the book, Eternity in Their Hearts. And he has, this, he has great stories of people who were, they, they looked at nature, they began to cry out for God and God would reveal himself. There, there was one story in that book where there was a, a, a witch doctor that was crying out to know the creator. He knew that there were spiritual beings, but he wanted to know the ultimate creator. And so one night, he had a dream, load up this mule with supplies and send some of the, the elders from the village, follow him and he will lead you to a man with white skin who will give you the words of life. So they did. He loaded up this donkey, slapped him on the hiney, and they followed it for and what was really days. They thought it was going to be just a short trip through valleys and over mountains. And finally, that donkey walked into a clearing, stuck its head in a hole in the ground, and up 
looked up a guy, white skin and a big red beard. He was a missionary. And they said in a dialect he could understand, show us the book that shows us the way to life. Give us the book that shows us the way to life. That's a good day as a missionary. They gave their own altar call and he hadn't even opened his mouth yet. So God will reach the searching soul. Nature itself. But there's, there's, a, a, there's not as strict a judgment on that person growing up in that village as there is for the Western Christian. Because we know more. And we will be judged by the light that we have. So it's a very scary thing to live with as much light as we have in the Western world. And especially if you've been raised in church. It's an old saying, the same sun that melts the butter will harden the clay. And you get to determine what your heart is made of. And we need to have the fear of the Lord on our life that as the word of the Lord is preached, that it softens our heart and we humble ourselves rather than allowing it to harden our heart. And we don't have time to get into it, but the hardening of the heart is a process that once set in motion is a very scary thing that progresses to the point where we become ignorant of the things we were once intimate with. That we literally lack feeling. The Greek word used by Paul in Ephesians 4 is porosis, for the hardening of the heart. Sound familiar? Cirrhosis, the hardening of the liver. Porosis is the hardening of the heart. It was used one time in ancient literature of a doctor who was there, was, there was a man that was so obese he was dying, and so the doctor would put these, I know this is gross, put long needles into him trying to provoke a nerve, and he got to the point where he couldn't feel anymore, and they called this the sensation porosis. He died. He, he wasn't able to be awakened by a puncture. Let the word puncture you and awaken you. And so this thing of being judged by what we know is a heavy, heavy thing. You are accountable for the light that you have. That's why rather than, if, if you're living in rebellion, don't ask for more revelation. Ask God to help you apply what you already know. Ask God to soften your heart. When I first got saved, I told God, I said, God, there was this rebellion in my heart. And I said, Lord, I don't want to serve you. I don't love you and I don't want to serve you. But I know you have the answer. So I'm asking you, give me the want to. I will go through the motions until you do. What an arrogant prayer. But our gracious Father answered that prayer and began to soften my heart. If you give God a crack in the door, he will invade your life. But we've got to take the word of the Lord very, very seriously. So we're judged by the light that we have. We're judged by our actions. Even the believer. Uh, First Peter talks about how we are judged by our actions, both good and evil. We, we will give an account for our actions. We will not be condemned. Second Corinthians, uh, no, First Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the judgment. Matter of fact, let's turn there real quick here. First uh, Corinthians chapter three. Well, let me, I'm torn between using my paper Bible, but I can wave this one, it just feels better. Okay, first, boy, the print is small. Woo. <laughs> Golly, you can't blow this one up. Okay. First Corinthians chapter three. I'm sorry, I'm gonna to have to use my, book, my computer. I really can't read that. It's not funny. Uh, 
So I'm sorry. It talks about God putting our life through the blast furnace of his judgment. Okay, look at verse, uh, look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. So he's saying, be careful what, you, what you're laying in your life. Paul, as an apostolic builder, gave apostolic doctrine that we have applied. We're building on his ministry. Even, even you know, millennia removed from Paul, we're still building on his foundation. For no one can lay any other foundation that, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. There's a reason we call it an appearance in court. I've got to make an appearance. It's the same idea as this word, that it's going to be made manifest. You're going to make an appearance. In other words, you're going to, what? You're going to be on trial and you're going to be made manifest. It's, you're going to be exposed for what was really driving you. So he says, uh, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it or reveal it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now he's talking about believers, okay? Now just, just as a side note, there are two, two seats of judgment at the end of the age. And as always, judgment begins with the house of God. So there's two judgments. There's the Bema seat or the, uh, the, uh, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. The Bema seat re referred to a seat that a ruler would sit upon. Uh, it also was where the Olympic judges, they would set up a Bema seat. It, it, the, literal, the word literally means a little stair step where you sit on that. And so they would, they would call the race. They would give out the medal or the crown on, from the Bema seat. And it refers to the Bema seat that Jesus sits on. The, the, the judgment seat of Christ. That is the judgment for believers. We, we're, we're not going to be judged for our sin in the sense that it will keep us from heaven. That's already been taken care of in the judgment at Calvary. But there is a second seat for those who don't agree with the judgment at Calvary, and that's literally what it is. When we get saved, we're confessing our sins. The word confession means agreement. We're agreeing with God's sentence at Calvary. We're saying, I agree with your judgment that you poured your wrath out on Jesus for my sin. I agree that I deserved that. I agree with your assessment of my sin. I agree with the sentence. I embrace that and I die to who I once was. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter six, he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world was crucified unto me and I was crucified unto the world. He's saying, Paul's saying, the only thing I have left to glory in is the cross that took me out, that removed me from the face of the earth. He says, I was crucified with Christ, yet not I, but Christ. And now the life of Christ lives through me. And so we embrace that. We embrace the verdict. So God, the first judgment was the judgment at the cross. The second judgment that we can enter into is self-judgment. That's called repentance, confession. 
as we respond to the discipline of God, as we respond to God's edict at Calvary, I embrace that and I judge myself. I agree with him. And in repentance, I step into newness of life. And that's the way I avoid this second throne, the great white throne of judgment, which all who are not in Christ will stand before. They will give an answer for their life. So we have at the end of the age, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, and then we have the great white throne. The judgment seat of Christ is for the believer. The great white throne is for the unbeliever. And the difference between the two are how you embrace, you can put it this way. Remember where Jesus was on trial before Pilate. He's standing there and he present, he's presented to Pilate and Pilate is on his Bema seat. And he says to Jesus, who do you say that, you know, who are you? I heard you're king of the Jews. He's wanting to make an assessment from his arrogant throne. Your life is in my hands, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you read it in the book of John, it's fascinating because Jesus flips the tables and he said, you wouldn't have any authority except it was given to you from above. My kingdom is not of this world. He's not saying that I'm not called to rule in this world. He's saying my kingdom, my king's dominion, my dominion, or my, the delegation of authority that I derive from is not from this earth. It's from the throne in heaven. God has delegated it to me. And then Jesus says this to him, who do you say that I am? And in that moment, in the spirit, what happened is Jesus is sitting on his throne and Pilate's on trial. And in a very real sense, every one of us were Pilate. And we think we arrogantly are going to assess the claims of Christ. But in reality, we're the one in the docket. And God is judging us by our assessment of him. Are we going to agree with his assessment of us and embrace his lordship? And so the way to escape the great white throne and stand before the bema is that you agree with his assessment at Calvary. Okay? So God judged his son. He's continually weighing us in the disciplines of the Lord. God is continually evaluating us, and if we're sensitive to him, God is bringing us from glory to glory. He's a good father. Hebrews chapter 12, we talk about the father heart of God, and we, we kind of think of it as this touchy-feely thing, and there is that element. I love that element of God's nature, that facet of him as a good father, and he fathers us well, and he loves us. He's tender towards us. I love that one of the criteria of God's judgment, or one of the parameters, is this beautiful little verse that says, he considers we are but dust. Man, I hold to that one. He remembers, I'm, I'm a mere man, a mere, I'm the dust, I'm from dust, and to dust I will return, I'm dust filled with his spirit. He takes that into consideration. It's very gracious of him. But the other facet of God's fatherhood is in Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, God is a father who disciplines those he loves, and everyone he considers a son. He goes on to say, if you are not disciplined by God, you are an illegitimate son. The King James Version is a little more blunt. 
Uh, it's it's, it's a, somewhat of an offensive word in our day and age that I won't use. But it's, he said, you are an illegitimate son. So the fact, if you never go through discipline from the Lord, if you're never being corrected by the Lord, if you claim, well, you know, God never corrects me, then you need to go back to the word and find out where you need to be corrected. Because that is not a good sign. God is a good father. And he is bringing us from glory to glory. And that is a form of the judgment in the sense that it's an assessment from the Lord where he's putting his finger on things in our life. And two of the primary ways in which he does that, by the way, is through the mirror of his word and the rebuke of a friend. Sometimes it's me being your friend and rebuking you through the preaching of the word. I don't know it. I'm just preaching and something hits you. Hallelujah. That's good news. God loves you. You're a son. But sometimes we need it more directly. And if you don't have friends that won't call you on things, then you really don't have friends. You need some friends that will yank your chain every now and then. We need people. Yeah, Amy, you were way too excited about it. No, I'm just kidding. It, uh, you need somebody that will, will call you on your stuff. It's like, they're, they're, you can use a mirror for some things, but then other things you need to say, hey, can, you know, is my hair straight in the back? Sometimes there's things you can't see in the word because you don't see it. So you need a friend that'll say, hey, you know what? When you cut your hair, you got a bald spot right, right in the back or whatever, you know. Or there's toilet paper on your heel or whatever, you know. We need friends that will call us on things. So the word, because you don't go by feelings when it comes to the discipline of the Lord. Now, God can begin to deal with you. You hear his voice, but he's gonna anchor it in something more concrete than your feelings. If it's just based on feelings, it's most likely not God. It's the enemy trying to condemn you. God is much more specific than just this vague sense of displeasure. God's a good father. He doesn't say, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated with something in your life. You figure it out. God is a loving father that says, son, daughter, you need to deal with this because this is gonna hurt you up, up ahead. I wanna put my finger on this. And if we don't respond to his voice, what does it say, was it Psalm 42? Don't be like the horse or the mule that must be turned by bit and bridle. I would guide you with mine eye. Now you know every good parent can lead their kid with a look. My mom and dad, man, they had that look. Man, my mom, she was such a mama. I thank God I had a dad in the home because my mama, we could have run over her. She was such a mama. But she knew how to use a Hot Wheels stick. You know, I, I, I just got it. Just, just, this is a little side note, okay? But I, I, this, is, this is painful. I, I probably need some sozo, inner healing. Because my mom and dad would buy us Hot Wheels tracks and then we'd get in trouble, they'd use them because they made a good spanker. You know, the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child. Now, I'm past the time where you can arrest me. My kids are too big to spank anymore. And the, you know, the plate, what's, what is that? You got seven years past the crime. I spanked my kids, some more than others, because kids need discipline, okay? If there are no consequences, if, if you tell your kids to do something and there's not a consequence, it's merely a suggestion. The Bible doesn't say, suggest your children do these things. We're responsible for their little life. And, and if you want to really prepare your child well for life, then you and that little microcosm of this world called your home provide some negative consequences when they do wrong things. 
and some positive blessings when they do right things. And you're going to reinforce the right behavior and you're going to cause them to realize, you know what? Sin ain't worth it. I really liked doing that for about two seconds. And the pain of the discipline outweighed the pleasure of the sin. So I'm not going to do that anymore. But if you raise your kids that the pain, the, the, the pleasure of the sin outweighed the pain of the discipline, they're going to connect some dots in their mind. Sin is worth it. And if they don't learn that in your house, what's going to happen is then God has to pull out the big guns of other authority figures. If they fail to obey their parents, God will have to bring in judges and law enforcement and teachers and principals and other people like that. Personally, uh, the judges and the law enforcement didn't turn me. So you know what God used in my life? It was a big old group of cowboys one night jumped us and beat the tar out of me. My, my nose was on the side of my cheek. And when you have glasses, it's hard to do that because then you, you got to look sideways because you're glass. And uh, I am to this day convinced that God provided that group of cowboys to beat up this group of hippies. It, uh, I needed that because I woke up right after that and thought, I need to be in church. God had my attention. You see, the psalmist put it this way. I know this is a little harsh this morning, isn't it? God, the, the word says this, do not be like the horse or mule that must be turned with bit and bridle. I would guide you with mine eye. The principle is you, you ever put a bit and a bridle in a horse's mouth, there's a metal rod and two rings and leather straps that tie it to its face. And if you want the horse to turn left, you pull to the left and cause great pain in the left side of its mouth. And it learns a little tug. And over time, when a horse is broken or what we call meeked, when it's broken, its will is under subjection to its master. You don't need to abuse it anymore. Some horses are more stubborn than others. Some are mules. Yeah. And there's another word we use for that. People act like that, and, and what has to happen is God has to bring heavier consequences. Why? Because he's trying to keep us from the ultimate consequences that addressed in Hebrews 6, eternal judgments. It's the mercy of God keeping us from those eternal judgments. I am so grateful for some of the devastating things that I experienced the consequences of my sin. And understand, not all the consequences of our sin are merely the natural consequences. Many of them are. You act stupid, bad things happen. Those were, those were natural consequences. But the Lord of the harvest was enforcing the law of the harvest. What I was sowing, I reaped. And God made sure I did it. Why? Because he loved me. And he wanted to keep me from the ultimate consequence. And so responding to the discipline of the Lord and coming into alignment with his assessment, when God corrects us, we need to get in line immediately and say, yes, Lord, I agree. This needs attention. Lord, I humble myself. And God can get us there. So we're gonna be judged on the light that we have. We'll be judged on our actions, we will be judged on our motives for our actions. Second Corinthians, where we, or First Corinthians, where we we're just reading, it says on that day, if you, well, let's let's go ahead and read it. It says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Earlier on, Paul is talking about the motives of the heart, and that's exactly what he's addressing here. It's not what we do, but why we do it. So God will not only judge us, discipline us, evaluate us, assess us based on what we know. He'll, he'll assess what we did, but also why we did it. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about at the end of the age, there will those be those that come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? We cast out devils. We healed the sick in your name. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You who stubbornly held to your own will. You workers of lawlessness is another translation. The idea of that word is they held to their own will. They were stubbornly pursuing their own thing. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not just what we do, it's why we do it. Now in this passage, Paul says that there are gonna be those who have built their life, they've lived their life, and it's really a picture of the Bema seat. It's very clear from this passage, he's talking about the judgment that the believers will go through. And so we don't know exactly how that's gonna look, but we do know this, that we're gonna stand before God in the sum total of our life will be put through the test of the blast furnace of God's assessment. And he said there'll be two different uh, types of works, types of ways the people live their lives. There's gold, silver, and precious stones, that which is valuable. And then there are wood, there's wood, hay, and stubble. Many teachers have pointed out that wood, hay, and stubble are readily available and they're above the ground. They're easy to get and they're seen of, of men. Whereas gold, silver, and precious stone, you usually don't have a large reserve of that. They're more valuable, and you have to mine them out. They're just not right on the surface. They're hidden beneath the ground and must be mined out. And it really does speak of our motives. Wood, hay, and stubble, you can have, you can get a lot of that. But God doesn't, doesn't judge us based on the magnitude. He bases us based on the motive. Did we obey what he said and did we do it for the right reasons? Man, I was listening to Mike Bickle. He, he brought a message recently. I, I forget what that was titled. I'd love to refer it to you, but it was within the last couple weeks I did IHOP and he was talking about some of this, this stuff about in a move of God, what happens is there's a tendency for people to manufacture the move of the spirit. Because all of a sudden in the move of God, there's, there's extravagant things happening and, and people want to be in on it. If they're not feeling it, they'll manufacture it. And the danger of that thing, to, to do things to be seen of men. And sometimes it's not a moral thing, it's more of a maturity thing. And, but we need to understand that we can cause great disillusionment in that type of activity. That the motives that we have we don't minister to be seen of men. We don't share things so that people will think we're spiritual. And God wants to put that light on our motives now 
Why do we do what we do? Why do we say what we say? Why do we give what we give and how we give? All of those things need to be taken into consideration because if we correct it now and self-judge and ask, Lord God, put your, your light on my heart, we can avoid crying at the, the judgment seat of, you know, the, the, the Bema seat. There are going to be a lot of people that the sum total of their life is burned up in the judgments of God. And it says they'll be saved though, as one escaping the flame. But the language there is you stand, your, 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 your life is stripped bare. And everything you worked for your entire life, we, we have this one shot at this thing called life. And we're storing up now for eternity by, by doing things for, with the right motives. You say, well, pastor, that, that sounds kind of legalistic. That sounds like you're saying we earn things. You can put it this bluntly. Your entrance into heaven is a gift. Your rank when you get there is earned. Your rank in heaven will be determined by how you live your life. Not only by what you do, but why you do it. Some of you were at the send a couple of months ago. It just shook me. Mike Bickle got up and he was talking about when he was about 23 years old, he had this dream. And in the dream, the Lord came to him and said, Mike, you're saved. Heaven is your eternal home, but your life was wasted. And he woke up in a cold sweat, just shook to his core. And he thought, Lord, you've got to be mistaken. I think in the dream, he even argued with the Lord and said, Lord, you got the wrong guy. And the spirit of God said to him, the son of man cannot be manipulated. And it really became a correction to him as a 23-year-old man that he's still living out of some well over 40 years later. It's like, man, if we can set ourselves now, we have this breath of life, this short little time on earth. You know, people like to say there's no tears in heaven. There will be. The ones that Jesus wipes away will be because we're going to be looking at the lost opportunities and if we can judge ourselves now by saying, God, Lord, purify my motives. I want to live the right, I want to do things for your glory and not for my glory. You can do wonderful things from which others benefit. You can heal the sick, cast out devils, give great offerings to help the poor and evangelize the lost. And those people are blessed but you've already gotten your reward because you did it to be seen of men and you got to be seen. You got what you did it for. And the tragedy is that one day we'll stand before the throne of God and when we see him for who he really is, we're gonna wish, God, I wish I'd have done more. I wish I'd have lived my life in such a way that you would receive all the glory. Lord, I, I wish I wouldn't have taken the glory. And I'll tell you, I've been there. I've done it from this pulpit shared little stories, but it was to make myself look good. And I, I want to stand before God and say, God, the things I did were for your glory. Lord, I, I want to live for your honor. I don't want to shine the light on me. And so I want to do that before I get there, where I still have time to correct those things. I want to have something to lay at his feet said this a few weeks ago, but I'm convinced of it. 
that, that gold, silver, and precious stones, that wood, hand, stubble, I believe all of us are going to have both in our wheelbarrow or whatever is going to go into that blast furnace, our cart. We're going to have both. And depending on how we lived our life, with eternity in mind, it'll go through. And what comes out the other side is what we're going to, our crown is going to be made of. And we will lay it at his feet in worship. And some of us, all we'll have is a little puddle of ashes. I'm telling you, there's going to be some weeping in heaven. And God's not going to condemn us, but it's, it'll grieve the heart of God because he wants to give us opportunities there's a purpose for our life that we're to fulfill, but it takes our engagement for us to step into that and to cooperate with heaven and to do exploits for his glory. Or we can live the comfortable life with heaven as our destination and have nothing to show for our life on the other side. And those that have that gold, silver, and precious stones, I believe literally God's going to make a crown and he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and place it on their heads. And what are they going to do with those crowns? That's what we're going to do in the worship services of heaven. We're going we're to see him for who he is. We're going to say, oh God, I had no idea. I got glimpses this side of heaven. But Lord, you're so much greater than I thought. We're, there's going to, I believe... <laughs> There's going to be times where we're just going to have our face to the ground out of fear, not abject slavish fear, but because he's so good and he's so glorious, we're going to feel like, God, I can't even look at it. He's going to lift up our head. He's the lifter of your head. And we're going to take the sum total of our life and say, God, if I'd have just given more the first time, but I want to give what I gave the first time all over again. Lord, I'm not worthy of this crown. I want to lay it at your feet again. And in that day, we're going to wish we had more in our crown. We're going to wish, Lord, I wish I'd have given more. I wish I'd have done more. I wish I'd have sacrificed more. I wish I'd have not taken the glory for the things that I did do. I wish I'd have done them in secret. And it's the mercy of God that he's given that opportunity to us now so that when we get there, we can do it for the right reasons and we'll have something to show for our life. I believe the next move of God is going to exalt him as judge. The last move of God exalted him as father and we needed that. But if we don't correct it, every truth needs a counterbalance and over time it becomes an imbalance. And a big part of the church has no concept of the church's, or as, of God as judge and they say it's legalism even to look at them in that manner. But it's all through the New Testament. It's implied throughout Scripture. You can make a list all through Genesis. Calvary was God as judge. And he continues to be judged throughout our life so that we won't have regrets when we step across the threshold. It's his mercy that works in us repentance. And God wants our lives to count. In that day, we're going to wish we could go back. Well, you can make the correction today. Now, I know many of us, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of the right things for the right reasons, but there's some things we've done for the wrong reasons, and there may be even some wrong things we're doing. God's the judge. Just in closing, one of the other parameters of the judgment of God when he assesses us is the judgment you meet out to others.
Judge not lest you be judged. It's not saying, it's not talking about making a biblical assessment of behavior. It's saying, don't you attribute motives to people and don't you, there's that tendency. Ed Cole used to have this wonderful saying, we preach law but live grace. We judge others by their actions but ourselves by our intentions. I don't know your intentions. And you know what? I'm too busy trying to deal with my life. Keep myself in line to judge you. But I love you, and I want to warn you, I don't want you to stand before God with regrets. But I'm telling you, when we are merciful towards others, we literally set the bar for how God will treat us. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. If you're harsh with others, then God said, I've got to remind you about the sentence you said. You set the standard. Be merciful. Be gracious. Forgive easily. Believe the best. That doesn't, love believes the best. It doesn't mean you're naive. It means that you give the best possible interpretation to the circumstance. I know what they did wasn't right, but they must be having a bad day, and I don't know what they're going through, and I don't know where they came from, and I don't know all the backstory, and Lord, God, have mercy. I give mercy to them. I'm too busy dealing with my stuff to judge theirs. And it's a sure way to find mercy on that day. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, Lord, we know you're glorious. Lord, we know you are awesome. But Lord, our revelation of you is tiny. And sometimes it doesn't harness our passions, our mouth, our temper. Lord, we're asking that you would help us to live in light of eternity. Peter said that you cry out to him, the father who judges each man impartially. And the result of that is we live in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is that we live for the long term and we realize we will one day answer to him. And that will, it's the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom always lives for the long term. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. Foolishness always lives for the passion of the moment, the temper of the moment, the impulse of the moment. Wisdom says it's not worth it. I'm always looking down the road. What will be the consequences? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's the hatred of evil because we begin to realize sin ain't worth it. I'm living for the long term. Our life begins to be leveraged for his glory. So Lord, we're asking God that you would impart to us the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Lord, we're asking that you would send a revival to America. But Lord, send it as a revival of the fear of the Lord. And set yourself up as the glorious judge that deserves to be worshipped. Lord, we ask that you would exalt yourself in that manner. Let's just wait on the Lord for a moment. I know we're gone a little long. Just wait on him for a moment. We can expose ourselves now to avoid being exposed at the throne. We can repent now to avoid regret then.
Lord, do your work. And Father, I'm asking that you'd begin to dig deep. Take the plow blade of your spirit, of your word, and turn over the soil of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.